0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information.
1: Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffeehouse Shots. Is Rishi Sunak going soft on China? This week, the Prime Minister gave his first big foreign policy speech and he used a phrase that rang alarm bells, robust pragmatism. There's also a question as to how the UK government will define China. The China Hawks want in the updated Integrated Review the phrase systemic threat to be used at the moment and is viewed as a systemic challenge. To discuss, I'm joined by the host and producer of the Chinese Whispers podcast, Cindy Yu, James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. Fraser, can you just kick us off? What do you think is the perception of Rishi Sunak on foreign affairs? In many ways, it's the place area where we know his views the least. Coming in as a chancellor.
2: The perception is that he doesn't have any views on foreign affairs, not really, that he struggles to get enthusiastic about it. You show him a a budget that doesn't add up and he goes bananas, but you show him the rest of the world and he struggles to get excited about, for example, the Northern Ireland Protocol, Russia, China. Not that he doesn't care about these things, but they don't particularly stir him in the way that they stir other people. Now, you get politicians who are simply like that. You get, like Woodrow Wilson, for example, was a Princeton academic who, when he became a president of America, remarked it would be a great irony of fate if his presidency would have to be taken up with foreign affairs. Well, the First World War kind of demonstrated that it was. But I think if you look at what Rashid Sunak has said previously, his work, he hasn't really been somebody where Britain's wider place in the world has tended to be a great part. Of his thoughts. Now, rightly or wrongly, he is regarded as a kind of a numbers man who will want to look at the logical case for everything. He'll want to see scenarios, planning how much will they cost, will they add up, what should they do. So when it comes, for example, to defence spending, this is the big question. Will he be committed to Britain spending a lot more, or will he perhaps lower defence spending, not being as keen as Boris? Boris Johnson was a classicist who liked to tell great stories of heroism, etc. He loved to have his overarching view of the world. And the perception of British Tuneik is that he doesn't. Now, this has been mainly expressed with the language of China. We know that this trust was quite hawkish in China... Quite a few Tories are hawkish in China. In fact, Liz Truss was talking about closing that funny China Foreign Centre, much to your chagrin, Cindy, what was it called again?
3: The Great Britain China Centre.
2: Yeah, basically, she was one for seeing yellow peril everywhere. Like, if there were two or three Chinese vote together, the well, odds are they were up to no good and should be shut down. Now, I don't want to see that it's too much of a caricature of Liz Truss's... I mean, it wasn't
3: run by Chinese, but
2: yeah... But broadly speaking, that was the impression she gave, wasn't it? It had China in the name. Yeah, it was probably probably up to no good. And she'd close it, right? You're lucky your podcast survives, Cindy. It might not have very much longer.
1: the foreign secretary is a big fan of your podcast before you go.
2: The foreign secretary is on record saying it's the most... Or acknowledging it is the most... But this, of course, this is a problem if you're studying China, because how are you supposed to get any sort of expertise together if you're regarded as fifth columnists? But the thing is, that was Liz Truss, but it is absolutely not... Rishi Sunak. So he is steering well clear of the hawkish language that had been used to describe China, the more hawkish language. I'm not saying that he thinks that Xi Jinping is the future of life, love and democracy. He just isn't as keen to pronounce China as the mortal enemy of the West in the way that Liz Truss was. And as you probably guessed, I'm
0: slightly more sympathetic to his view of the world.
1: At this point, I was going to go to Cindy, but James, your face is so interesting right now. I'm going to bring you in.
0: The reason i was making a face is that the Manchester speech talked about kind of ever-greater authoritarianism in China, obviously delivered at the time when the Covid protests were at their peak. And the Chinese authorities do seem to have successfully, by sheer display of force, repressed those. On China... I mean, there are three things we should think about. The first is, as Fraser says, our lack of knowledge, which worries me, which is, you know, if 50 years ago we'd left this office, you couldn't have walked more than 50 yards without bumping into someone who was a criminologist. You could walk quite a long way from this office before you bump into someone who, once you've left this office and Cindy's company, someone who understands the power structures of the Chinese Communist Party, who's in, who's out, you know, who President Xi's rivals are, all of those things. The second thing I think everyone needs to realise is that how the West handles China will depend on how aligned the West is in the way that it deals with China. And I think that, you know, two developments this week I mean, are significant. One is the Canadian review of, of their foreign policy posture, which again suggests that the US, Canada, the UK and Australia are all lining up in a very similar place in terms of the relationship with China. That is very important. But perhaps even more important than that is the fact that Japan is going to raise its defence spending to 2% of GDP by 2027. Japan has basically operated an informal cap of 1% of GDP on defence spending, essentially. And if Japan is going to start spending seriously more on defence, that is going to shift the balance of power in the Indo-Pacific. And it's of particular relevance to the UK because the UK already has a close defence relationship with Japan developing kind of joint fighter aircraft together and the like. And I think when it comes to China, right, I mean, you can't wish China away. So the question then becomes, how do you intend to deal with it? And how do you deal with the fact that the Chinese clearly have a strategy of trying to control access to various critical goods? And I think that's why the government's decision on Newport Fab is so important, because traditionally we've looked at these kind of national security decisions and said, we're only gonna block this takeover if it's a kind of key piece of technology. What the Newport WaferFab decision shows is that you're going to say, look, we get that semiconductor chips, even ones that are not at the most cutting edge of technology, are a vital resource in today's world. And we're not going to let Chinese-owned firms with their, their particular relationship to the Chinese state develop an ability to control global supplies of them.
1: Cindy, do we have any sense of how Beijing, has she sees Rishi Sunak? There was talk originally of a meet between the two, um, mm. which didn't happen in the end. But there was some relief I picked up in government that it didn't happen because there are foreign policy figures who would rather... Sunak was taken on a journey before coming to face-to-face with you.
3: Yeah, that was an interesting moment because... James, as you you and I discussed at the time, you know, it does seem like the Chinese were willing to meet with lots of Western leaders at the G20 and had it not been for this strike in Poland, they probably would have gone ahead. But actually, Chinese media then was very critical of Rishi Sunak and a lot of people were very concerned that he was a bit of a list trust 2.0. I've been trying to reassure any Chinese people I meet that he's not, but... I think partly it comes down to possibly Sunak's lack of experience in talking about foreign affairs because he said something about Taiwan on that trip that wasn't picked up much in the media here but was focused on quite a lot in China, which was that the UK would consider militarily supporting Taiwan in any invasion. And that, that was seen as like a big step forward in rhetoric. And I'm not sure how, how impactful that is, because clearly in other ways he hasn't exactly you know gone down a trust direction. He's already said that he won't be talking about China as a threat rather than a challenge. And so I think they were still waiting and seeing, because he's a little bit of an unknown quantity, because they haven't dealt with him much before.
1: Fraser, what does it matter if the UK calls China a threat or a challenge? In the sense, this is clearly where the China hawks, Ian Duncan Smith this week writing an op-ed saying it must call it a threat. There was a question at Prime Minister's questions. But what's the, the real-time significance of this?
2: Well, it's a very good question. When Britain described Russia as a strategic threat... Certainly, that ought to have had implications. From that moment on, we should have, for example, have been thinking about arming Ukraine and the rest of it. It was rather a matter of regret to the defence establishment that this didn't happen. They were thinking, what's the point in declaring Russia to be a threat if we're not going to ever do something about it? They certainly believe that words should be followed up with actions and that if a country is officially recognised as a threat, then there needs to be tools on the ground, even boots on the ground, working out what that threat might do and how to counter it. So if you officially regard China as a threat, then that implies you're also going to do something about it. You need to be actively treating China as a threat. So I don't think these words are empty. I think they ought to be used very carefully. And I think they absolutely ought to be followed up with action. That's why I think you can call China a headache, you can call it a whole bunch of things. But if you were to say it is a major military threat to Britain, then that would have implications you'd have to to follow through on. And I don't think it fits that criteria, which is why I wouldn't use that word. Maybe you would, though, James.
0: I think China is a different kind of threat. In that, I think the challenge of China is that China is trying to, you know, I mean, they're very explicit. This is made in China strategy. They are trying to gain a position of dominance in the industries of the future. And then their economic strength will then be reflected in geopolitical realities. And I think that that is something that is clearly not in the UK's interest to allow to happen sure but you, you can't really call it a threat in the way we were rightly calling russia a threat i think one of the things we have to realize is that there are different
2: types of threat no, but really i mean say if you're marks and spencers and i'm tesco am i you know i'm a competitor to you i'm a challenger to you but am I a threat to you
0: i think where china is different is the means by which china wishes to compete involves intellectual property theft all of these other things right so
1: but james just to clarify are you saying that if there are different types of threat you wouldn't want to Use the same phrase for both of them.
0: I think we get far too hung up, as your question suggested. I think we get far too hung up on the particular word that is used. I'm much more interested in what the substance of the policy is, rather than the word itself.
1: Cindy, do you think there would be a kickback in China if, if there was to be a change in how the country was described?
3: Yeah, I think there would be. But, I mean, that's not a reason not to do anything, first of all. But I think... It is interesting to think about the Chinese reaction. For example, Rishi Sunak has said that he will ban Confucius Institutes, these kind of embedded Chinese-funded organisations teaching mainly language but also culture and history of China with a CCP spin. Do you think he was right to do that, by the way, Well, Well, so one of the concerns that some people in the China field have is that that would lead to China retaliating by closing the British Council in China. It wouldn't be a fair retaliation, it wouldn't be equivalent retaliation because the British Council is not what the Confucius Institutes are like, but it would not be beyond the Chinese to do that. And so the question then becomes, do we really want to lose our soft power in China and for what gain, whether or not that is worthwhile. And so when it comes to designating China a threat, you mean, look at the sanctions that have been levied on people like Ian Duncan Smith, who we've mentioned, and other MPs, that actually came in response to Western sanctions on Chinese officials. So of course, you can debate about the moral equivalence of all of this stuff. But the Chinese have been known to retaliate like for like, and they don't shy away from that. And on the threat question, I'm off the Charlie Char- Charles Parton School of thought on this, which and he's a fellow at Rusi, having been a diplomat in Beijing for decades, and he believes that you know we can think China is a threat without formally declaring that. What is the point of writing that down in black and white in an integrated review? We can all operate on a similar basis, as James says, there's a different sort of challenge to Russia, but why make a big song and dance about it unless you know what you're going to do about it? And so that's where the actual policies, like. Banning Newport Wafer Fabs acquisition and that kind of stuff really comes into more effective play. And finally, Fraser, do you think this
1: parliamentary Tory party is going to be able to adapt to a leader who wants to be lower on the rhetoric? but ultimately quietly get on with a robust approach through actions.
2: Yeah, of course. There's always been a debate about China, about how, how to treat Huawei, what to do about the Confucian centers, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And I think that debate will continue. But if you are looking for a, a leader who will see China as the big threat facing Britain, the, the great geopolitical adversary, you're not going to find that in Rishi Sunak. And I find that quite refreshing about him. I think the big changes we've had recently in China's demographic projections in the way that its economy has gone, does not put it on the course to overtake America and become this great global hegemony. I don't really share the concerns of those Tories who think that fate is going to put us into a conflict with China. By the way, you have to be careful. I mean, we know that has got designs on Taiwan, and if he were to do to Taiwan what Putin tried to do to Ukraine, then that would take us into conflict indirectly, perhaps even directly, who knows? But we're some way away from that yet. And I still think that people in this country are more interested in understanding China than they are to condemn it. We don't need to blindly proclaim that the Chinese Communist Party standards are pretty inimical to those of Western democracy. I think everybody knows that. But as to whether China is a country which we need to be tooling up against now in advance of the inevitable clash, that's not something Rishi Sunak believes. And I don't think he's got any truck with those who do.
1: Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you, Cindy. And if you'd like to learn more about China, do check out Cindy's Chinese Whispers podcast. It's not just James cleverly thinks it's worth a listen. It's also everyone in this room and beyond.